Lord, there are times when the words that we sing on a Sunday morning can be difficult to sing. It can be difficult, Lord. It can be difficult to believe sometimes the words that we're singing because of objections that rise in our own hearts. Whether we're Christians or whether we're skeptics who come here, Lord, or whether we're those who, who believe, but we still tend towards skepticism because of things that have happened, it can be hard to believe. Lord, we do say, help our unbelief. This morning we ask, Lord, would you help us to see how we can preach to ourselves the ultimate answer to the deepest skepticisms of our heart. Lord, as we read this, and even as our hearts might be hardened by Various things, would you help us to, would you soften our heart with, with grace today? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the story is told, and this is, it's sort of folklore at uh, my undergraduate alma mater, all right? So I've heard this story like third or fourth time, third or fourth hand, several times over, and because of that, I cannot verify precisely how accurate it is. All right, but the story is told that um, you know maybe seven or eight years after I graduated, there was a student at the college named Ray. Okay, and Ray was a great guy. He had a strong desire to study theology and philosophy and mission, but man, he really struggled academically. He had already been on campus full time as a student for four years, and he was only a second semester sophomore. And it was a really academically rigorous environment, but um, Ray's just pouring in tons of effort, working really hard. He kept ending up on academic probation. Semester after semester, he's on academic probation, okay? And he was also compiling student loans throughout this process. Okay, fast forward three years. He's been at the college for seven years at this point. It's early May, about a week away from another graduation ceremony. And while Ray at this point had completed more courses... It wasn't nearly enough. It wasn't close to graduating. And in fact, it seemed like he was on the brink of academic dismissal. And he knew that. Like he knew that he couldn't go on continuing on in academic probation semester after semester, grinding onward without much to show for it in terms of credits before they would say, listen, this just isn't working out. We need to cut you loose. And he had compiled three more years, now seven years total of debt, of debt towards school, um, it just makes his, made his stomach sick, thinking of that, thinking of being dismissed academically, but still having all this debt with potentially nothing to show for it in terms of a degree. Uh, but, but one day, he went to SIPO. It's what we call the campus post office to check on his mail. And you know, back in my day, if you walked to SIPO, there's a little mailbox with a window. You'd look through it to see if you had a little pink slip in there. So there was a pink slip in your sepo, it meant you had a package, exciting things, okay? Um, and so Ray went past sepo, looked through the window, saw the little pink slip, brought it up to the sepo worker. They went to the back and actually brought out a letter, but it was more than that. It was a thick brown envelope. Brought it up to him. It had the official college emblem on it. You have to think that what he was probably thinking at this moment was that this is the letter finally cutting him loose. Right? They, they wanted him to sign for it. They didn't just stick it in his mailbox. They wanted him to sign for it. They wanted to make sure he saw it. So he opened it up right away. And sure enough, 
there was a letter that appeared to be written on the college official school letterhead. His stomach sank in anticipation of what he thought he was about to read, but to his shock, the letter said, Ray, something along these lines, said, Ray, we want to inform you that you will be graduating next week with full honors and that your student debts have been wiped clean. Uh, along with this, in the envelope, there were um, there's more information related to graduation information, as well as cards to send, the official invitation cards to send out, invite family and friends. And he just stood there staring at this letter, you know, having a really hard time reading it. Went over and over and over again, and it just didn't make sense. And so he, he, he rushed excitedly back to his dorm mates and showed them, he even showed some of the faculty, he was immediately met with suspicion. Maybe it was a mistake, you know? Maybe it was meant for another Ray. Ray's a pretty common name. There are quite a few Rays at Moody. Some of them believed it was just a prank. Someone was being pretty cruel, playing a prank on him. The faculty who looked at, looked at it said it, it looked inconsistent. Uh, it looked like it was personal letterhead rather than something, the, yes, it had the school's name on it. It didn't look quite right. The emblem looked a little bit different. It wasn't super consistent. Others thought maybe Ray was the one trying to pull a fast one. They were essentially accusing him of fraud. So were there are all these objections to the letter that Ray received, you know? And after putting up with direct accusations against him, objections from faculty and even other students, snobbery from those who thought, well, you're not good enough for this. Why would they do this for you? And even some faculty members who said they would advocate for his immediate dismissal for contriving such a story and trying to pull a fast one. He took the letter back. In the midst of that, he takes his letter back to his dorm and he just read it over and over and over again. And you know, it all seemed crazy. He acknowledged how crazy it seemed. He acknowledged that the claim that the letter made was this huge claim. He acknowledged that it seemed unbelievable. But he was startled. As, you know, as he's reading this, he's startled by a knock at the door. There's an older man who asked if he could speak with Ray. Ray said, yeah, I'm Ray. Invited him into his dorm. The man said, Ray, I'm sorry for all the confusion from some of the faculty. I'm, I'm, I'm clearing things up for you right now. I want you to know that. Ray was confused. Didn't know what the man was talking about. Didn't recognize him. So the man said, Ray, I'm the one who wrote the letter. He continued, my name is Joseph Christensen. Do you know who I am? Ray shook his head. He didn't, didn't recognize him. He said, I've served on the board for years. I've heard your story. Yesterday, I became the interim president of the school. If the letterhead looks slightly different, that's because it's the letterhead from the office of the president. And he paused to show him that the emblem was reflective of the, the presidential emblem of the school. And he continued, he said, one of my first orders of business was to direct the academic registrar to grant you honorary credits for your time here and then direct financial aid to cover your loans with an endowment that we'd recently received for this very purpose. I have the authority to do this by nature of my office. It's in the bylaws. It's done. And sure enough, the following week, Ray graduated debt-free with full honors. And you know, every now and again, so I think it's like based on a true story, right? Every now and again, you hear stories like this, 
about something like this that, that happens. Here you have someone making what seems to be this outlandish, impossible claim that's met with derision and suspicion and accusations and objections, all kinds of objections, like the claim is just too big to be believed or the claim seems super inconsistent and it doesn't gel with other things that I know about or, you know, maybe the person who's making the claim, there's something wrong with them, right? So all these accusations are, are, are hurled at it and yet people then realize the identity of the person who made the claim. You know, that by nature of who they are, they actually have that kind of authority. You see this in, like, Undercover Boss, where, you know, the CEO of the company goes undercover, and he's, like, in the cook room making fries at the fast food, and he's saying, oh, yeah, we'll, he's hearing the, the employees complain about something that's hard. He's like, oh, yeah, we'll change all that. People look at him, and it's like, it's your first day making fries, bro. Okay, calm down. Turns out he's the CEO of the company, right? So we see these kinds of stories, but in the text this morning, we find, some, find this to be something of the central theme. Over the course of the last several weeks, so we've been in these two chapters in which Jesus has made claim after claim after claim, and that's the idea that we, we come to the end here. The crowd has heard Jesus make all these claims, and, and now they give a summary of their objections up to this point. They meet Jesus' claims with suspicion, derision, accusations. They seem like such big claims, such fantastical claims, right? And now we see three objections from the crowd that really directly mirror the kinds of objections that our culture has to Christianity. And in each case, Jesus answers the objection simply by pointing to who he is, that by nature of who he is, because it's from him, because he's the one saying it, he has the authority to do exactly the things that they claim is so ridiculous. He has the authority to claim exactly the things that they claim to be so ridiculous. So three objections is really what we're looking at in the text. Three objections to the claims of Jesus, starting in verse 48. So look there with me now. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are, some, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Okay, so here we have firstly what we'll call the personal attack objection to Christianity. Okay, the personal attack objection from the crowd. What I mean is, over the course of the last several sections of dialogue, Jesus has carefully dismantled every argument they've tried to make about who they are, right? about how they're deserving of some kind of special status, they're so moral, they're so upright, they're so good and obedient and righteous, therefore God owes them kind of language that they've used up to this point, right? Therefore God owes them. That's called moralism. The idea that if we behave well enough, if we're good enough, then God would, will bless us. And if he doesn't, there's something wrong with him, right? Because he owes me a better life. He owes me something. And that's the language that they've used up to this point. But Jesus has demonstrated their claims about who they are are false. They're, they're out of line with the scripture. They're out of line with the truth of who God is. Their claims about who God is is also wrong up to this point. It's out of line with the scriptures. It's out of line with who God is. It's out of line with logic. And he's done this just over and over again. And so now, because they don't have any theological argument left, they offer up a baseline personal attack right? Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? So, okay, time out, back up. If, you have, if you've ever studied formal logic, one aspect of that study will be logical fallacies. So my daughter and I went through all the logical fallacies just a couple of years ago, and she was just beginning 
formal logic. And a logical fallacy, it's an error in reasoning that essentially invalidates your argument. And, and one logical fallacy that we hear a lot about is called the ad hominem fallacy, okay? And that's what we see here. This is essentially an ad hominem response to Jesus. It's the fallacy of personal attacks. You know, if you want to know what ad hominem means, it's a fallacy of personal attacks. That is to say, it attacks the person making the argument rather than the position they're advocating in order to, to attempt to undermine the argument they make, right? We see this all the time in politics. In fact, as I was watching the presidential debates with my daughter, it was just hilarious to hear her yell out the fallacy, you know. Um, oh, that's ad hominem. Rather than topple an argument that an opponent makes, let's come up with the clever little nasty nickname for the opponent, you know, so that people won't believe the arguments that they make. Right? The obvious problem with this is, even if the person, the personal attacks that you make contain some truth about the individual, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, it doesn't in any way undermine the position the other person is putting forward that they want to undermine. So it's the popular fallacy of people who know they're unable to defend the positions they hold. They know they, they can't topple or debate the positions of the, the opponent. They don't have much to say. There's not much substance but they can get people pretty distracted by attacking the person, by calling names, baseless claims, attacks without any evidence. And that's what's happening in the text here, at least in two ways, because first they, first they say Jesus is a Samaritan, that he isn't even Jewish. This is a ridiculous claim, all right? It can be easily disproved. Jesus can appeal to his mother, who's still alive. His brothers actively are a part of his his life. We've seen him in past weeks, previous weeks, talking with his brothers. And they can be very easily disproved, but they advance it because of something Jesus said in last week's text. So if you remember, Jesus said they don't have any claim on Abraham, his father. We're going to talk more about that again, but have any claim on Abraham, his father, the way they think they do. Why? Do you remember? Their conduct doesn't match their claim right? They don't look like Abraham at all. They don't look like their dad, the, the person they claim to be their dad, that actually there is someone who's in close resemblance with them. It's Satan. Satan's their father. They share the most likeness in terms of their desires and works with the devil rather than with Abraham. And so they hurl out this, this claim, well, he, you're a Samaritan. Why? Well, it was a common teaching among the Samaritans that the Jewish people actually didn't come from Abraham. They actually came from Cain's line. They didn't come from Abel. They extended from wicked Cain. That's what the Samaritans taught. So the crowd is basically now trying to lump Jesus in with faulty Samaritan reasoning to discredit his claims. But they know it's baseless. In fact, this is the only time in all four gospel accounts that anybody brings this claim against Jesus because it's, it's really impossible. It's not that this was super easy to prove or that this was somehow in doubt or in question. They just wanted to get the rumor going. You know, they wanted to smear him. So first, they, they make a ridiculous claim that he's a Samaritan. But second, they followed that up with a childish claim, a childish claim that Jesus has a demon. Now, you might say, wait, time out. If this is a childish claim, what about Jesus? Doesn't he say something similar just last week? And yet you didn't call that ad hominem. You didn't say that was baseless personal attack. And also, you didn't call that childish there's a difference, you know. Um, the reason this strikes me as childish is because last week, Jesus gave evidence for his claim theologically that Satan is their father, that because of the problem of sin, they don't come from Abraham, they actually come from the devil. 
that their desires mirror Satan's desires in the garden, the desire to call God's word into question. Did God really say? Did God really say? The desire to confront God's word. You will surely not die, right? And so the retort from the crowd here is the child's response. Jesus says, Satan's your father, and the child's response of, you are, you know, your face is the one with the devil on it. Uh, But the reason, you know, the reason they go on this personal attack, basis claims without any evidence, is because they don't like what he's saying. It's not because what he's saying isn't true, it's because they don't like what it is that he's saying. They don't like the claims that he makes. And we see the kinds of things they don't like in the way Jesus responds. But we need to know how he responds. So look at verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. So he's, Jesus starts to pivot back last, to last week again. To say, I, I'm not, I don't have a demon. Let me, let me explain this to you further. I honor my father. You dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So, so this is the personal attack objection. It's an ad hominem response to Jesus. The way that Jesus responds to this objection is by pointing people back to his true identity, pointing people back to who he really is. He dismantles the personal attacks by pivoting immediately back to his central purpose. You know, his argument is essentially this. He says, by saying and doing, always and only what the Father tells me to say and do, what the Father gives me to say and do, I honor the Father. But by refusing to receive the things that I say and do, you show that you're not from the Father. You show that you're not of him, that you don't believe him, that you dishonor him. In other words, they seek their own glory, denying their need for a Savior, denying their problem of sin, Desiring a Messiah created in their own image. Trying to end around God in order to get their own glory. So they seek their own glory, but Jesus pursues only the glory that comes from God himself. They're much like the first Adam because they share that common problem. that, That problem today. That universal problem of sin. So the first Adam who tried to end around God to get glory but he's the second Adam. He pursues only the glory that comes from God himself. And yet he came, listen, he came, the second Adam came, that we all might be able to pursue the glory of God. Like he came into the midst of people who despised him, who rejected him, in order to save them. So by nature of who he is now, he can say, despite your sin, despite your failure, despite your neediness, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. If anyone keeps my word, what does he mean by this? Is he saying, if you're obedient enough, I will bless you? I thought that's the, isn't that what Jesus has been saying all along, has been wrong, this moralistic claim that we're good enough, we're obedient enough, and therefore God will bless me. But here he is saying, if you keep my word, do I need to be obedient enough to, to really gain the blessing of God? No, listen, listen. Grant Osborne helps us understand this here, and we'll unpack this a little bit. Osborne says, the emphasis in this section has moved from, and I want you to see the difference between these two. I think the screen is going to be helpful to unpack some of these quotes, make them a little more sticky. The emphasis in this section has moved from believing to its result, obeying. See, this is how the gospel works. The gospel has a result in us. The gospel, when believed, when trusted, 
right? When we put all of our, when we throw all of our efforts out, knowing that we could never reach a holy God, but we rest entirely on God's mercies, that belief has a result. That belief does something within us. So the emphasis in this section is moved from believing to its results, obeying. In 831, Jesus said, remain in me. And now he says, obey my word. And now listen to this. So if you're wondering, what kind of shape does the gospel give us? Osborne's so helpful in helping us understand how gospel accounts function, like how to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also how the gospel itself functions. Because he, he tells us exactly the kind of way that the gospel changes us. He says one's belief must produce a reorientation. There's, there's something that the gospel produces in life. So at Gospel Life, we talk about rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus, that we root all of life there. Because it's from that gospel that he brings transformation and change. It's for the city's good. It's for people's good, right? It's for his own glory. So one's belief must produce something. What does it produce? A reorientation of one's life. There's a reorientation that happens. What's that reorientation? You know, is it away from one, one preference to another preference? Is the reorientation looking a certain way culturally? Is the reorientation away from the Packers and to the Bears? Maybe there's an argument to be made there. Uh, no, One's belief must produce a reorientation of one's life away from the world and into the word of Jesus. That's what gospel reorientation looks like. So the text starts with this personal attack objection, an ad hominem response to Jesus. And listen, the world in which we live continues to make this kind of objection against Christianity, against Jesus himself. Today we hear, let's use the same form of the question for a minute. Today we hear, are we not right in saying that you are a bigot? We hear that the teachings of Jesus may have represented the best wisdom of its time, but now we need to move beyond them because of their bigoted nature, because of Jesus' teaching on a series of ethical topics, particularly human sexuality. But far from being bigoted, far from being bigoted, Jesus' central point throughout his teaching as we see right here, is that we all share the same central problem, right? Because of the nature of who Jesus is, he's able to say, this is what sin is. This is what sin looks like. This is what it looks like to be separated from me, to be far from me, to be pursuing that which is not for your good, but actually that which is separating you from me, that which is an act of rebellion against me. He's allowed to do that. He has the authority to make that claim by nature of who he is, and therefore to say, all of us share that same central problem, every single one of us, and, and all of us therefore share the same fundamental need, which is for him to break in and transform everything about us, a complete reorientation from this world to his word, right? By pivoting once again to who he is and who we are, he demonstrates these baseless claims to be untrue, okay? And yet, so the crowd continues to make this argument that it's his words that are untrue, so here we see Number two, the scriptural inconsistency objection. Scriptural inconsistency objection, starting in verse 52, the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? 
You know, the reason we're calling this the scriptural inconsistency objection is because essentially what they're telling us, what they're telling Jesus here is that Jesus' word is different from the word of Abraham in some sense. Jesus' word does not match up with the word of Abraham. Jesus' word does not match up with the word of the prophets. That Jesus is somehow unhitched or disconnected from the Old Testament. That the word that Jesus has to say and the word the Old Testament has to say in some sense is different and is somehow even at odds with one another. After all, here you have Jesus saying, if you obey his word, you won't see death. Yet Abraham heard and obeyed the word of God. The scriptures tell us. And he died. The prophets heard, obeyed, and even taught the word of God. They died. Who does Jesus claim to be if they could obey and follow his word and not die? He must be claiming to have a different word. But that's, that's super inconsistent of someone claiming to be from God. You know, if he claims to be from the Father, but his word operates totally differently from the Father's word, there's inconsistency there. But, but listen, this is, and this is really another logical fallacy, but this is a false dilemma. It's a false dilemma response to Jesus. It's actually not the problem. It's a manufactured problem. It's not the problem that they claim it to be. It's a misunderstanding of Abraham. It's a misunderstanding of the prophets. It's a misunderstanding of who Jesus is claiming to be. And yet the crowd is so confident in their misunderstanding here that their question almost reads like it's rhetorical. Like they're expecting a negative answer. Are you greater than our father Abraham? And their expectation is for Jesus to be like, no, 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 of course not. Let me clarify. Because they've distorted his testimony about himself. They've twisted it. They've taken it out of context. It's based on a misunderstanding. They don't understand who he is. They don't understand what difference that makes. And so Jesus responds by once again pointing to who he is, starting in verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. So again, that differentiation between who Jesus is and who they are, like his identity, their identity, continues to happen. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Right? This is good news. This is good news that Jesus keeps the word. He keeps his Father's word. Okay, so Jesus is saying, listen, any self-praise... Any self-glory that's independent of my Father, that comes independent of Him, that tries to end around God in order to receive it, is not only meaningless, but it's actually how the human condition became marred with sin to begin with in the garden in Genesis 3. Like we preached through Genesis 3. What did we find? What did we see when we were in Genesis? It was a long time ago, but I assume that you remember all my sermons. We saw Adam and Eve trying to bypass God to get wisdom, trying to bypass God to get glory. Why? Because they didn't want glory that came from him. They wanted glory for themselves, right? A glory of their own, a self-glory, a self-praise. Jesus does not come in that way. The first Adam comes in that way. The second Adam does not come in that way. He doesn't come to contradict his father and seek his own glory. He doesn't come to be independent from the Hebrew Scriptures, the author of Hebrews writes this, he says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Like all the, the scriptures point to a second Adam who comes not 
seeking some independent glory. He doesn't come like some rebellious child who says, listen, the old man is crazy. I'm here to do my thing, and don't listen to him because he's outdated and old. And man, have you ever read the Old Testament? Yeah, that's my father. That's an older generation. I'm, I'm the new generation. I get it. I'm more compassionate, right? That's not what Jesus does. That's not how the scriptures describe him. He's not a rebellious kid. And it's because of who Jesus actually is that we can come to see why he's different from Abraham and the prophets. You know, why he's able to make the claim that he's making. You know, Jesus here tells the crowd they don't know God, right? And every time he says stuff like this, they go bananas. They don't like it. But they shouldn't, they shouldn't really be surprised by it. Like, if they're hearing Jesus say, you don't know God, and their immediate response is to get all upset. What does it show? It shows that their minds right here in their hearts are not steeped in the Old Testament text because I'm telling you, throughout the prophets we read, (laughs) the prophets telling the people, you don't know God. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There's no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. We see that throughout the prophets. We see it in the Psalms where the people do not pursue. No one pursues the knowledge of God. No one knows God, the psalmist tells us. We see it throughout the prophets and the Psalms, but we also, you know, where we don't directly see the teaching, it's actually assumed. So Jeremiah 31, the prophet says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people shall no longer teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Do you see what it assumes? You don't know me. God says through the prophets, but the days are coming when you will know me. We'll know what you don't know now. So the fact that Jesus is saying that they don't actually know God, it shouldn't surprise them shows that they're not centering in, seeing what the scriptures have to say. Because the prophets have said this all along. And and listen, even more centrally, I think, Jesus is saying, by the way, those days that are coming in which God will make a way for his people to know him, that Jeremiah was talking about, they are now here because of who I am. They're now here because I'm here. Verse 56, verse 56, look. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus essentially says, you keep using that word, Abraham. You know, because throughout 7 and 8, they're all talking about Abraham, Abraham, claiming Abraham, you know. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. I was going to put the meme up there, but no need to get crazy on week one. He says, he says, do you realize... That if Abraham were around to witness what you all are witnessing right now, he'd be rejoicing. And more than that, he did rejoice. He rejoiced at the thought of the day. He saw it coming and was glad. He knew about it. There are some who argue what, what this is talking about is Abraham is in heaven witnessing Jesus. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think the next verse, the next several verses actually bear that out. It's impossible. I think Jesus is talking about the scriptures. So they've made this claim of scriptural inconsistency, that the word of Jesus is different than the word of Abraham. The word of Jesus is different than the word of the prophets. And Jesus is pointing back to the scriptures and he's saying, do you remember when when Abraham responded to the Lord in joy? Another sermon that I'm sure you remember from, from Genesis, right? When did Abraham respond to the Lord in joy? At the announcement of his son Isaac, he laughs. 
Isaac's name means laughter. Isaac, for whom God made a substitute, through whom God would continue his promise, placing his promise not on Abraham's shoulders, who failed over and over and over and over again. The Abrahamic narrative is just filled with Abraham's failure, and yet God gives him a son by grace. And Abraham rejoices. And in other words, Abraham had foresight that all of these events, all these things were pointing to someone greater, to a promised seed, to a promised blessing for the entire world through him. Not only does Jesus' word not contradict, here's what it means. Not only, this is what, why we call it a false dilemma. Not only do Jesus' words not contradict the Old Testament, not only do, Is it not detached from it or different from it? But the word of Abraham and the word of the prophets are all about Jesus. That's what they're all about centrally. So you can't detach Jesus from the Old Testament because it's all about him. Carson is helpful. The fact remains that Jesus identifies the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's hopes and joys with what? With his own person and work. With who Jesus is And what he's come to do, it's what all of the Old Testament scriptures have been telling us about. So when you press in on who Jesus is, you know, on his very nature, on his own person, on his work, on his identity, it undermines the personal attack objection to Christianity for sure. It undermines all that ad hominem because if he's the risen Christ and he is who he says he is, He's the one who's able to judge us. We can't judge him. It also undermines the contradicting scriptures objection because listen, if Jesus is who he claims to be, he's the ultimate fulfillment of everything that's been written. You know, there's no scriptural inconsistency. If he's standing there as God himself, then that means all of that is about him. It's for him. It points forward to him. Let me give you a good example. So this this scriptural inconsistency objection remains in about... 47,000 ways today. And, and, and what I mean is, it remains not just saying like, oh, there are, there are inconsistencies in the Bible or there are contradictions in the Bible. There's like many, many ways in which people still argue that what Jesus proclaims and what the Old Testament proclaims are fundamentally different or at odds with one another. And, and so I, I had way more examples planned initially. We had time for one, Okay. So here's a good example of this. You'll hear people say commonly, and you, you hear it most often in the media, you'll hear it in TV shows, you know, fiction TV shows is sort of a so- an aside comment. People say that Christianity is inconsistent, the New Testament, Old Testament, very inconsistent with what, which rules you should follow or not follow. For instance, the Old Testament is considered part of the Christian scriptures, but it commands its readers not to eat shellfish, to avoid certain kinds of fabric, not to eat raw meat. And Christians do all, most, most Christians by, by and far do all those things unless they don't like shellfish, right? It's a preference issue, right? Unless they, they prefer certain kinds of fabric. But, but Christians eat meat. You know, Christians do those things, all right? So, so, so people say, well, look, Christians do all this. Then they make a huge deal about sex ethics in our culture, sexual ethics in our culture. They're just picking and choosing what to believe. Picking from over here, picking the Old Testament section over here. There's there's Old Testament sections on sexual ethics that they say are binding for today. There's Old Testament stuff on fish and fabric that they, they say isn't binding for today, right? But this is a classic false dilemma. 
It's a false dilemma because it's simply not what the scriptures mean, nor has it been the way that, the, that Christians have interpreted the Old Testament for more than 2,000 years. You know, leading up to Christ and then after Christ this is not the way the Bible has been interpreted. So listen, uh, it's a distortion. Those laws of the Old Testament, there are moral laws and there are ceremonial laws. Moral laws flow out of the very nature of God. Do not kill, do not steal, right? These are hard issues. They flow from the heart. And yes, Jesus says that human sexuality is a part of that. The Old Testament claims human sexuality is a part of that. So at the same time, there are ceremonial laws. There are moral laws, there are ceremonial laws that were put in place for the people to essentially make themselves clean for worship, to keep from being spiritually unclean in coming before a holy God. But part of the reason for that law was to show us, to show the people. And listen, give me just 30 minutes and a Bible over coffee and I'll prove it to you. Prove it. Part of the reason was to show people that no matter how much they did, they would always remain unclean and in need of a Savior. No matter how many reforms they made, no matter how hard they tried, they would always remain unclean and in need of a Savior. They, they would never be able to keep themselves spiritually clean and coming before a holy God. They would always remain in need of, of, of the Christ. And so when Jesus came, he came to do for us that we can do that which we could never do. Do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So that we wouldn't have to rely on the law to save us, wouldn't have to rely on whole, making ourselves clean, cleaning ourselves up, that's impossible. And in fact, listen, here's the kicker. Anyone who still thinks they have to do those things, anyone who says, oh no, I'm a Christian, I have to avoid shellfish. I have to watch what fabric I wear. Oh no, I'm a Christian, I have to, to avoid raw meat. They're actually not a Christian, the scriptures tell us, because they're adding to the gospel. The gospel is what saves you? Jesus plus nothing. And if it becomes Jesus plus certain aspects of the law, Paul says that's a different gospel, severed from Christ, fallen from grace. Christ is of no benefit to you. You're not a Christian. Uh, uh, Tim Keller is really helpful. He writes this, so how do we respond to it? How do we respond to the charge of scriptural inconsistency? So says one way to respond to the charge may, may be to ask a counter question. So it's good to have dialogue. Someone charges you with this. Ask them, are you, so to clarify, are you asking me to deny the very heart of my Christian beliefs? Okay, now we have a dialogue going because they might respond. If you are asked, why do you say that? You could respond, if I believe Jesus is the resurrected Son of God, so what do you pivot to immediately? The identity of Jesus. Right? If Jesus is who he claims to be. And that's what Jesus keeps coming back to in the text. He is who he claims to be. The letter's been written. It seems outlandish. You know, nobody believes it, right? But if, if the person writing the letter had the authority, right? So Jesus is who he claims to be. If I believe Jesus is the resurrected Son of God, I can't follow all the clean laws of diet and practice. And I can't offer animal sacrifices. All of that would be to deny the power of Christ's death on the cross, right? To be a Christian necessitates that I rely fully on the mercies of Christ rather than any aspect of Old Testament law. So we start to see why the identity of Jesus is so crucial, so important for toppling these personal attacks, toppling a lot of these charges of scriptural inconsistencies. Um, so Jesus' identity speaks directly to both of those, both of those kinds of objections, which we still see today in many, many forms. But there's a, a third kind of objection. We'll call it the big claims objection, starting in verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So the big claims objection about who God is, how he's at work in the world, is that that must be false. Like big claims about who God is, big claims of how he's at work within us, it must be false because it's big, because they appear to be impossible to our ears. In philosophy, this is known as materialism. It's a materialist response to Jesus. Materialism, I don't mean like in the sense of like wanting material things. That's a different kind of materialism. I'm talking about the notion that nothing exists apart from matter and its movements and modifications. In other words, we're in a closed system in which God doesn't enter in and do anything. And you could say, well, look, the Jews aren't materialists. First century Jewish people aren't materialists. And you're totally right. At the same time, they certainly share components of what we'd call materialism because they reason, how could Jesus possibly claim to know Abraham like a contemporary? Jesus wasn't even 50. Abraham has been dead for 2,000 years, right? So they're thinking in terms of a closed system. They're thinking in terms of earthly realities. Are you saying I need to climb back into my mother's womb and be born again? Give me this water that I might drink it and never... They're thinking in terms of physical, closed system types of realities, materialistic kind of realities. It's a big claim, so it must be false. It sounds outlandish. sounds crazy. And, you, you know, you might be looking at this section because Jesus responds to it by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And this is a powerful statement of his identity. But some of you might be looking at this and saying, well, if Jesus wanted to communicate that he existed before Abraham, wouldn't it have been easier and more grammatically correct to say before Abraham was, I was? Like, I existed before Abraham? But here he says, before Abraham was, I am. What does he mean? Well, at least in part, he is saying he existed before Abraham. So it's a good question. He's using the phrase again, I am. Do you remember this phrase, ego me, I am? We've seen it again and again and again. He's using it as a, as a title in part. This language we will continue to see throughout John declaring that before Abraham was, not only did Jesus exist, he existed as God himself. He existed from eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And and what do they do? They take up stones to stone him. They consider this blasphemous. This shows us they at least in part understand his claim perfectly, that he's saying that he's God himself. His use of the I am language continually seems to strike that chord. It causes people to bristle. They don't like it. The crowd doesn't like it. It's this big claim. And here it's directly applied to his existence from eternity past, his sovereignty over the scriptures, his claim to be the one whom Abraham had rejoiced at the thought of, you guys, and he, to be present even while Abraham was rejoicing. And, and you know, this big claims objection, we also see it in our time. There are many who hold God's at arm, God at arm's length in their life, Precisely because of a philosophical prejudice against the nature of the miraculous. You're telling me God exists. But you're also telling me that he came into this world as a man, he died, and then he bodily rose from the the dead? That's just, it's too much for me to believe. But here's the reality. If God exists, if a creator of this universe exists, if he's a good God, if he revealed himself to this world, he absolutely can step into this world. He absolutely has power over life and death. We absolutely can't possibly understand him. And so the gospel tells us that God broke into human history in the person of Jesus in order to show himself to us, in order to save us from our inability to see him. We can't see him. 
Even when that blindness comes in the form of baseless personal attacks, charges of inconsistency, a lack of belief in the terms of the big claims. Next week, we're going to see an illustration of that blindness in real form. Jesus is going to see a blind man. We're going to have, we're going to get a look at what this looks like, what that kind of blindness looks like. But it really does lead us to this. What is it ultimately? What is it ultimately that topples the objections of our hearts? Like we come, we hear the, the, the gospel and we come with these oppositions, these objections. What do we preach to ourselves? What's the identity of Christ? So here's the central theme of the text this morning. The identity of Jesus, who he is, directly confronts the deepest skepticisms of the human heart. Let me just encourage you. If you're here this morning and you've got non-believing friends... And those non-believing friends have all kinds of objections against Christianity. Yeah, there's value in what we call apologetics. There's value in pointing them to, we have good reasons actually. Our faith faith is a reasonable faith. It's not just some blind faith leap off a cliff. We have good reasons to believe that Jesus was physically bodily risen from the dead in history. We have good reasons to believe in the testimony of the Gospels. We have good reasons to believe in the Word of God, in, in the Scriptures being the very Word of God. So we have good reasons to believe these things. At the end of the day, what it all comes down to is, what are you going to do with the person of Jesus? So I encourage you, show your friends Christ. Open the scriptures to them. Introduce them to Christ. If you're here and you're a non-believer, I just, I'd encourage you, come back to Gospel Life Church. Keep learning about this Jesus. Like, what are you going to do with Jesus? Who he claims to be? Keep looking into John with us. If you're not, if you're a believer... Our hearts are very susceptible to these kinds of objections, too, that can rise up in our hearts. Keep coming back to Christ. Keep coming back to who he is, what he's done, what he claims in the gospel. I'll sum it up with this quote from Osborne. Jesus is the key to everything. He is Yahweh, and until we both acknowledge and conduct ourselves under that reality, we can never live the life God wants for us. Let's pray. Lord, you've shown us who you are, and yet we know even from the last several weeks that we can't believe, even believe apart from your grace and mercy at work, and yet you're so gracious to show us yourself. You're so gracious to enter into this world. You're so gracious in revealing it to us. You're so gracious in giving us your spirit that we might know you, and so we pray for that grace even now. Spirit of God, show us Christ. Help us to believe. Help us to see the truth of who you are and what you've come to do, to be transformed by it, to be reoriented away from the world and into your word. In Jesus' name, amen.